Well, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, in a lot of ways, is a power play. It is a tension uh, of two powers and one that we need to make choices about uh, where it is that we are going to align ourselves. And so today, what I want to talk about and the question I want to kind of try and get at is how can we, on the one hand, harness power, but also unleash it into the world for good? How do we take power and harness it so that it doesn't destroy us, but also to push it outwards into the world in a good way, in a way that actually helps helps people. And you might be sitting there saying, well, that sounds great, except I don't really have any power. Maybe it doesn't feel like that uh, resonates with you because you go, I'm not a powerful politician. I'm not a CEO. I don't have a huge title. I don't have a million followers on Instagram or TikTok. Uh, I'm just kind of a regular person. And so talking about power maybe uh, doesn't, doesn't hit a chord with you right away, except that I would say if we change that word a little bit to talk about influence, a lot of us might uh, more easily identify with it. Because all of us have influence. You might not feel like you're a super powerful person, but if you think about it at work, you might not be the CEO, but you have influence over the people around you, whatever level of a, a company or group that you might be at. In your relationships, even friendships, you have influence. You have a certain amount of influence over uh, how people feel and what people think. The things that you say will really matter to uh, your friends, the people that are around you. In your home, if you're in a relationship, if you're married, if you have children, to a certain degree, you have influence. And we might not always think of that as power. We might not talk about it as power, uh, but we do have influence. And I think it's important for us to think about how we use our influence, how we use uh, our positions in order to help other people. Ernest Becker wrote this. He says, the heroic projects of men, and I think he means people there, uh, but of men are mostly overcompensation for a paralyzing fear of death, powerlessness, and diminishment. I think what he's getting at is, is something like this, that sometimes we go out and we have these, these big heroic things that we want to do. We want to save the world. We want to accomplish something huge. We want to be successful. Uh, we want people to follow us. We want to do some major, visible, awesome things. But I think what he's saying is what we maybe don't always realize is that that is often just a, a reaction inside of us because we're not so good at dealing with our fears, with our vulnerabilities, with the things that are difficult. Difficult. And I was thinking about that this week because I think it's very true. Even if you just think about um, how, we, how we influence those who are growing up, people who are young adults and the kind of things that were sort of culturally ingrained in us uh, to really go after. We teach people uh, to work really hard. We teach people to have big dreams, right? It's a very North American thing. Have a, have a big dream. What's on your heart? What do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? What success do you want to have? And then, and then go work really hard at it. We, we usually really stress education. Uh, go learn a trade. Go to university. Go get the, the things that you need to do something really big. And then work really hard at it. And then make some more money and get a title and try and get ahead and that becomes very, very much in the background of our minds how we're supposed to live our lives. And I think some of us, uh, maybe you've been through this in your, your early 20s or late 20s, as you start to build a life, you sort of think that's what life is supposed to look like. There's this arc of, man, you sacrifice a lot in the beginning and, you know, you got to do the schooling or, or the, the, the training and then you got to do the entry level job, but it's always about getting up to the next level and getting up to the next level. And if you can build a little money and build a little experience, you can get more successful and more successful. And then you you can get the, the higher ranking jobs and maybe you'll be in charge of people and maybe you can do something really big. And that's fine to a certain extent. But I wonder if sort of culturally and even in the church, we're really 
training one another to deal with what most of us, I think all of us, will eventually face, which is, but then we encounter failure. Or we continue to encounter insecurity. We thought, oh, I thought I was going to get to a certain point, and then I would just be confident, and I, you know, then I would just be rich, and then all of a sudden we go, but, but then I hit this failure, or life doesn't keep going up and to the right on the chart, and, and we realize, wow, life doesn't always work that way. And I think what the, the quote says is, Sometimes we just try and overcompensate. Well, then I'll be more successful and I'll be richer and I'll be more powerful and more influential. I'll work harder. I'll just climb the ladder. But really what we're compensating is for the fact that we're not real good at facing our fears. Fears are the biggest things in life, even fears of death. Or the fact that no matter how much we think we're in control, at the end of the day, we face things in life where we realize, I'm not really in control. I don't have power over everything. Or the fact that in our lives, sometimes it seems like we're going backwards and not forwards. Do you know, in a lot of cultures, um, a lot of cultures practice for young adults initiation rites. It's something I think in our culture we've almost completely lost. We have very little um, thought towards that, um, very little processes, very little things in life um, that help us get into initiated into sort of adulthood or maturity. So if you look at sort of the initiation rites, and again, there's, there's many cultures and historically many cultures where initiation rites were so important that there was this process that as you're maturing, before we kind of say, hey, you're an adult, they were like, there's some things that you need to get ready for in life because life is going to be hard and because you're going to find yourself in places where sometimes you're going to fail and you're going to be vulnerable. And at one point, you're going to have to face the fact that you're going to die. And maybe, you know, these are things we don't always want to think about, but they become very true. And where we in North America have maybe sometimes glossed over that and say, we'll just keep working hard and keep climbing the ladder and keep becoming more and more successful, many cultures have stopped and said, if we don't prepare people properly for what adulthood is like, what life is really like, the difficulties and struggles, we're going to have major problems. So you see in a lot of cultures, there are these rites, these, these rituals. Where, where people are sent on uh, sort of pilgrimages or journeys, they go often out into nature, and there's this time where built into it is this process of trying to see the world in a different way and see your life in a different way. Oftentimes, initiation rites across cultures include things like this. Separation from business as usual. So let's get away from just here's our routine. Yeah, you, you go to school, you go to work, you make your money because sometimes we need to be drawn out of that to realize that that's not all that there is to life. And so oftentimes it's, hey, go out into nature for a significant amount of time. Get away from your home, get away from your, your regular routine. Usually it includes silence, probably to hear and perceive things that we don't normally perceive when we're busy and when there's always something on, there's always music, there's always a podcast, there's always something streaming. Looking, observing, how is it that nature works? What's going on in the world around me? What can I learn from just what I see and what I perceive when I am separated from business as usual, when I silence myself, not just... Uh, my, my physical mouth, but when I silence my heart and my mind, and when I really open my eyes, what do I see? Listening? Same thing. What do I hear? Maybe in these moments, it's what do I hear from God speaking to me when things are a little bit quiet? And then finally, often there's an element of some kind of suffering, some hardship, Again, to realize and, and sort of experience, to walk into the reality that life is difficult, that life is hard, that sometimes life is painful, to, to step out of for a moment the comfort of our lives and the drive to say, uh, I always have to be looking for luxury or comfort or ease, 
and instead to put your, so oftentimes this is like going out into nature and having to fend for yourself and having nothing around you. How are you going to get your food? How are you going to make shelter? How are you going to provide just the basics when everything else uh, is not provided for you? So I was reading a little bit about initiative, uh, these initiation rites, and then I went back and read from Matthew chapter 4 a little bit about Jesus, before Jesus really starts his public ministry. We don't know that much about his early life, but in Matthew chapter 4, we read, you know, he, he's not yet, he doesn't have the followers, he doesn't have the notoriety, he doesn't have the big crowds, so important. Listen to, and I'm just going to read some of this, but listen to what happens to Jesus before any of the public stuff. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. Now we might not get this, and there's a lot going on here, but I think some people in other cultures might go, this sort of sounds like an initiation rite. This sort of sounds like exactly what we would do to someone before they really launch out into their life. We want you to experience something that drives you to a deeper level of learning. Go out by yourself. You're fasting. You're hungry. There's no comfort, there's no ease, you're fending for yourself. Here there is a a spiritual component going on, something Jesus experiences. During that time, the devil came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and he said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and he will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next time the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? So here's, again, this moment before Jesus has any real public ministry, any following, any crowds, any quote-unquote success, notoriety, and he goes out, he's all on his own, he's hungry, he's fasting, he's in the wilderness. Just imagine what he must have seen, what he must have heard, what he must have observed. Think about maybe some of the parables that he told later, so many of them about nature, about the birds of the air and about the grass of the fields. And you wonder, were those things that he learned or those things that he heard from God when he was out in nature, when he had no other distractions, when he was hungry and he was observing, when he was looking and seeing in silence? And then think of the powerful lessons here that are being worked out. Here comes the devil. Here comes the Satan hey, I'll give you all the power. It's three different times, just different versions of power. Look what I can give you. Look at the influence and the control. You want to take the city? I can give you the city. Jerusalem, where everything happens, the center of our politics, the center of our, our religious system, the center of influence. Often quoting scripture. You're the Christ. This is sort of the, the undertone. If you're going to be the one in control, the one in power... Well, here's how you can take it. Just think of how powerful it is for Jesus to learn these deep lessons to be able to reject that kind of power, that kind of influence, at least that way of having influence. 
And I think it's no mistake that we read that before Jesus goes on the rest of his ministry. And just to think about what he must have been learning, what God must have been doing in his heart, how he would have been thinking about the scriptures that he had memorized that were in his mind and that just were, 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 were becoming who he is and how important it was for him to have that time. Because of all the things that were going to come later, because of all the people that were going to follow, because of all the, the miraculous things that were going to happen through him, because of all the temptations that were probably going to come with that. Ooh, isn't that so interesting? I wonder if for us, as we go towards Easter and as we work our way to Good Friday and think about the cross, the power working through Jesus and the cross, and to ask ourselves, what is that? What, it's so upside down. So antithetical to what we think is a successful life for someone to be crucified. That is, by the way, and especially in Jesus' time, the ultimate way of saying this person is not successful is to publicly crucify them in the most humiliating, punishing, public way. And yet to see that this is what Jesus was, was learning and embracing. And then for us to ask, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Or maybe to ask whether we think it's worth it. So let me skip ahead now to Palm Sunday. So in between uh, Jesus' ministry, his, his healings, his teachings, the way that he announced the kingdom of God, what it really looked like for God to be in charge in the world and for us to embrace that and to live that out. And now on Palm Sunday is the day where Jesus will re-enter Jerusalem, the capital city, the center of politics and religion for his day, and how he's going to do it and what it says to us and what it calls us to be part of if we're willing, especially when it comes to power and to influence. So now Matthew chapter 21, it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. At this time, what we now call Palm Sunday, uh, and Jesus makes this procession into the city, there were actually two processions. There was Jesus who enters notably from the Mount of Olives or Bethpage, which is a little bit east of the city. And then there was Pilate's procession. Pilate was uh, the leader, the one who had influence, uh, worked for Rome, the, the oppressors of the Jewish people at the time. And the people were about to celebrate Passover. Passover for the Jewish people, for the Hebrews, was a time where they celebrated their great liberation, where their ancestors who were enslaved to the Egyptians were miraculously brought out of Egypt and their slavery by God and brought out into freedom. It was a time where those who were weak and vulnerable and powerless, God worked on their behalf, called them out, gave them safety and security, and led them away from their oppressors, led them away from their, uh, those who were uh, violent towards them, uh, those who were enslaving them. And so you can imagine this is a great celebration. It still is for our Jewish friends today. They, they look back and celebrate. 
So Passover is coming. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. This great festival, and people are going to flood into the city, even people who don't live there, so that they can celebrate together, so that they can remember. Remember when we were enslaved? Remember when we were oppressed? And remember when God was greater than those who oppressed us and enslaved us, and he brought us out of safety. Now think for a second. If there is a bunch of people who are sort of weak and vulnerable, and they're celebrating a time where God threw off all of their oppression and made them free, how would that make you feel if you were their current oppressor? If you were the people of Rome, if you're the leaders of Rome who are saying we have these people and we basically have enslaved them, we're violent towards them, we oppress them, we use them, we tax them, you would come to Passover and go, we need to make sure that these people don't get any ideas. We need to make sure that these people don't celebrate this and start going, hey, and you know, I bet we could do it again. If God did this to our ancestors in Egypt, don't you think he could do it to, for us who are under the thumb of Rome? Maybe it's time for us to leave a revolution, to throw off our oppressors, to fight against them. And so the Romans, thinking about that, wanted to make sure that nobody got any ideas, especially at times of these festivals like like Passover. And so Pilate had his own procession. Pilate lived in luxury on the sea, in a place called uh, Caesarea of the Sea. He had a very nice place to live, you know, all the things anybody would want, money and, and luxury and people serving him. And he was powerful. And the Roman army was powerful. They were the superpower of the day. And so when it came time to, for the Jewish people to celebrate something like Passover, where Jesus came from the east, Pilate would come from the west. Where Jesus rode on a donkey, an animal of, of peace, peacetime, Pilate would come in on his war horse. Pilate would come in with a show of military might, again, to remind them who's in charge. So picture now big war horses. Some governments, we still do this today, you still see these, uh, at these, these shows of military power, right? Where tanks roll in and jets fly over and soldiers march. That's what would have happened here. Pilate would come in and he would be, he would be leading his soldiers. They would have their leather equipment on. They would have their, their gold uh, weaponry, all the, the most powerful things, big, big war horses, and they would march so visibly into the city so that people would look around and go, you don't mess with Rome, they're powerful, they are in charge. People would have lined the streets and they would have either been in awe or they would have been afraid. Sort of depends on whose side you're on. But look at this, this powerful show of might. Who do we follow? Well, we follow Rome, we follow Pilate, or we follow the emperor even bigger. So for Pilate, a cavalry of horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, metal and gold weaponry, you would hear the marching of feet, creaking of leather, clinking of bridles, beating of drums. People would refer to the Roman emperor at this time as the son of God, Lord and Savior, the one who brings peace on earth. And how does he bring peace on earth? Power, violence, domination. You get with the program, you follow Rome, and we will bring you peace. Well, peace because we'll defeat our enemies. Peace because we're the strongest army. Peace because nobody will be able to defeat us. You see, Rome ruled through at least three things. Political oppression. So the average person didn't really have a say. Certainly weak and vulnerable people didn't have much say in, in what was going on and how things were ruled. They were very far from anything close to what many of us have experienced living in a democracy. But this was mostly powerful and rich people declaring how things would go. 
and creating the political system. This is, you know, that typically, and we see this over and over in our world and in history, but that benefits those who are powerful and rich, who are at the top, and oftentimes leaves those who are vulnerable or weak to fend for themselves. They ruled through economic exploitation, through taxing, again, through creating systems that benefited economically, financially, those who were doing well and those who had a lot, while often forgetting those who didn't have enough. And then, and this is kind of the kicker, religious legitimate, uh, legitimation. This is, you know, not just how we've done it. This is not just Rome saying, here's how things work. This is by the will of the gods. Things are the way that they are because this is how the gods want them. The gods have put some of us at the top and some of us at the bottom. And that's just how it is. And that's how you have to get in line. And if you don't get in line, you get trampled. And this is very much the way of Rome. The Lord, the Savior of the world, the Son of God. All these titles given to the Roman emperor. And so when we read this and we just realize that that was kind of what was going on and that was the procession that most people were expecting every year at this time of year when you read Jesus saying, go get me the donkey, the animal of peace, the animal of agriculture, not of war. And you see him humbly coming into the city, not from the west, but from the east. And you start to hear people lining up on the streets and looking at Jesus, you realize this is a power play. This is a tension. Who's really in control? Who's really in power? What way will we choose forward? The power, the might, the army, the violence, the domination of Rome? The gentleness, the peace, the forgiveness, the grace of Jesus. The end of that little passage I read comes from, uh, there's, a, there's a quote from Zechariah the prophet that says, Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The next verse, which is not quoted here, but is in Zechariah 9, first part of verse 10 says, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring pre- peace to the nations. What sort of king should we anticipate? Because, by the way, many Jewish people, their expectation of the Messiah, of their king, of the one that would come, the one that would oppose Rome, the one that would be the counterpart to Pilate in the procession, would also come on a war horse. That was the expectation. Just be stronger than our enemies. We're going we're to do what they've done to us, except we're going to be bigger and stronger, and we're going to win the day. That was the expectation. But here, the quote from, comes from Zechariah. And we say, what kind of king will it be? What kind of way will he usher forward? What are we being invited to? Well, he's the one who's going to remove violence. He's going to get rid of the war horses, destroy the weapons used in battle. He is going to truly bring peace. It'll be a completely different way. Back in Matthew 21, verse 6 says, So the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna. A couple of things here, spreading the cloaks. You go, is this sort of like 
you know, you're on a date and it's raining and there's a big puddle, so you take off your coat and you put it on the puddle so your date can walk across. Very chivalrous, but not exactly what we're talking about here. This was an act of submission paid to royalty. So back in 2 Kings verse 9, uh, verse 13 says, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So don't have time to get into that story. But when they realize, hey, this is our king. This is the one that we're giving authority and power in our life. They go, oh, they take off their cloaks. They lay it down for him. It's this, this show. Hey, you're in charge. You're the one that we're following. And then they get out palm branches, which you go, is a little bit strange. Why do they do palm branches? You can read in the Old Testament. Um, Palm branches were a symbol of victory, specifically used at the Festival of Tabernacles, which celebrates this time when God brought the people out of Egypt, which we already talked about. So in that festival, the Festival of Tabernacles or booths, uh, people, part of their celebration and their praise, they would take these palm branches uh, and they would have them and they would wave them around. So when we read that this is what people are doing, here comes Jesus not on a war horse, but on an animal of peace and agriculture. And the people come, and at least some of them, if they call out, Hosanna, save us, they take off their cloaks and go, because we believe that you're king. And they take out their palm branches because they go, we believe that this is the one bringing us back to a time of wholeness and peace and goodness. This is the one ushering in the kingdom of God. Just like our ancestors were brought out of Egypt, he's the one that's going to bring us out of our slavery. So they call out, Hosanna to the son of David, the great king lineage of the king. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus asked Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. We've talked about this phrase, Hosanna, already this morning, which means save us. Again, I think we can think of it two ways. Sometimes it's a call. Please save us. We need you to save us. And sometimes it is a statement. You save us. You've saved us. It's a, almost a declaration of trust and of confidence. You're the one that we're following. We will trust you for our salvation. And you go, so what? What's the significance of all of that? I think part of the significance is for us to make a choice. What procession are we part of? What procession do we want to be part of? What do we believe about power? What do we believe about influence? What do we believe really will bring us to a place where we're, we're saved? And by saved, I, I mean we experience the wholeness, the peace, the shalom, the goodness of God in our lives. How do we think that's going to come about? More money? More success? More control? Bigger army? Violence? Being strong all the time? being able to dominate other people, getting ahead. I always think that's a funny, funny thing that we always talk about. Just trying to get ahead. Who are you trying to get ahead of? Or do we line up with the one, and let's be clear, who enters into Jerusalem to go to the cross? Do we believe in the power of the cross? It's upside down. I mean, really think about it, not as an abstract religious symbol that sort of seems distant. Oh, yeah, that's how I got to heaven. 
That's how, that's how we get to heaven one day is that there was a cross. But think about it. Do we really believe in the power of the cross? Do we believe in the one who didn't say, I'm never going to be vulnerable, but the one who in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested and then crucified was sweating blood that he was so, he was so caught up in this to try and say to his father, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. That if this is the way, that if I have to be hung on the cross, vulnerable, naked, beaten, if I have to enter into weakness, even weakness to death, to enter into mourning and grief, to experience evil right through it, not around it, not over it, not, not trying to avoid it, but actually stepping right into it and having it heaped upon me. Do we go, this is actually power. To actually accept that life is hard and suffering can't always be avoided. In fact, through suffering is the way forward. These are all things that Jesus is teaching us, that he's, he's showing us. These are all things that Jesus, I believe, was learning in the desert before he did anything miraculous or special or noteworthy learning. What up is, and that up actually comes from going down. That instead of hatred, revenge, a need to get even, violence in the face of violence, that the true way forward, not just for him as an individual, but for humanity, is actually through love and forgiveness and grace. Stopping the cycles of revenge that say, I will not do to someone else what they will do to me, just to get back at them, or just to get ahead of them, or just to win the day. To say that strength looks very different than many of us think it does. Actually being vulnerable accepting suffering, diminishment. But believing that it is in these things, it is in this way that God is bringing about his kingdom. A whole different way. Going down rather than always trying to climb up. And the things that we proclaim that Jesus offers us at Easter, forgiveness, grace, unconditional love is only brought and experienced when he steps into vulnerability, steps into um, the pain, the hurt, where he refuses to get even with those uh, who are violent towards him, towards those who are, are, are literally hurting him, killing him. So just before this story, and actually in between the story we talked about last week and this one. Remember last week we talked about, uh, you know, this, this rich guy, and Jesus has this interaction. He wants the good life. He wants eternal life, and they have this interaction, and Jesus basically tells him, because he's rich, just sell everything. Because you think getting ahead, and you think having all the money, but you, know, you need to be filled with grace, not filled with merit. And so he turns it around, this guy goes away sad. And then today we read this passage on Palm Sunday, Jesus, who is stepping into vulnerability and stepping into suffering and stepping into grief. And he's unwilling to be uh, hateful. He's unwilling to be revenge. He's unwilling to be violent. Instead, he's, he's going he's gonna to go to the cross. And by the way, if you're just shaking your head going, I don't know how to accept all these things. I don't know how to live that out. That's the force of what these stories are supposed to tell you. In between these two stories, there is uh, just this this little quick episode and as Jesus is walking through and there's these blind men and they reach out to Jesus, they call out to Jesus and they go, uh, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. And Jesus, he, he answers back to them and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Which sort of seems obvious because they're standing there blind, but I think Jesus wants to have the interaction. He wants to draw it out of them and they say, we want to see. 
And so it says in Matthew 20, 34, and Jesus in pity, in compassion, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Listen, this little sort of almost, a, you know, oh, it's just this quick, oh, he does a miracle, it's nice. Please don't leave this surf on the surface, this little story on the surface. This story is put there because while we're trying to wrap our heads around, man, what it would look like to live totally different and follow Jesus in this cross-centered life, in this, this grace and, and abandoning our hatred and abandoning our, our, our anger and abandoning our, our, our need to get back and our revenge, and your, your head is spinning. And then in the middle of these stories, you have these guys saying, we want to see. Jesus said, what do you want? We want to see. We want to see. And the question to us is, do we want to see? Do we want to see? Do we want to see things differently than we've always seen them? Do we want to see a life that looks like following Jesus? Do we, do we want to have our eyes opened up and our hearts opened up to saying, I believe the way forward, I believe the way to wholeness and goodness is not in dominance and it's not in always getting ahead, but in the way of Jesus. To suffer, to be vulnerable, but to show grace and to show love, to be willing not to kill for what you believe in, but be willing to die for what you believe in. To die for your friends, to die for your enemies, to show real love. I think uh, some of us, on the one hand, again, we might feel like this is a little detached for us. Um, and yet we see in our world all the time these dynamics that continue to, to rage. Right now, the most obvious one is what's happening in Ukraine. And with the dominance and the violence of, of Russia coming against Ukraine and people trying to figure out how to do this. And, and for some of us, again, we might, our hearts break and we hurt and we want to help, we want to do something. And yet it's an ocean away and it's way over there. And you go, how does this interact with me? And I'm not a, a warmonger and I would never go to war. What am I supposed to do with that? But I think it's a reminder that these power plays still live in our lives and we still have to make the choice do we want our eyes to be open to a new way? I think the battles that we fight as humans outwardly begin as battles that we fight inwardly. How do we respond when we see that this is still happening? And we might say, but it's not happening here. It's not happening with me. To start to say, God, would you open my eyes? Perhaps there's a hatred in me. Perhaps there's an anger that I haven't dealt with in a healthy way. Perhaps there's a division in a relationship. Perhaps... There's this need to get back at other people. Perhaps there are things inside of me. And then for us to be reminded that that's where these things start. People don't just wake up one day and hurt each other. People don't wake up one day and go to war with one another. I think the battles that we fight outwardly begin as battles we fight inwardly. Listen to this quote from Henry Now, and He wrote this um, during the time of the Gulf War in a letter. He said, With what kind of heart then do we have to pray? We have to pray, first of all, with a repentant heart. A repentant heart is a heart that is willing to see the darkness of the world reflected in our innermost being. It is a heart that is willing to confess that the anger, jealousy, hatred, and desire for revenge that lead to destructive wars are not foreign to the one who prays. It is a heart that does not shrink from the realization that it carries seeds of destruction within itself. It is a heart that is broken, contrite, humble, and aware of its own part in the evil it wants to expel. That we're not immune from the things that, that lead to destruction. That's hard to hear. But listen, Easter is so glorious. And the transformation is so real, so invitational for us to experience. The cross is so powerful to see how God would expel these things with true love. It's so hopeful. It has everything that we need as humans for us to come to. 
my invitation today is for us to, to pray these prayers, to say, do we want to see? To ask ourselves, what procession will we line up on? And to recognize with repentant hearts that those seeds of destruction are in us. And yet, as we'll find out next week, in the cross, we see that Jesus gives us everything that we need to overcome. So I hope you'll join us next week as we celebrate that hope and as we reorient our lives around the cross and the resurrection. Let me close with a prayer. Again, this is written by Henry Nouwen in the same letter uh, as he was uh, praying for, uh, for the people around him and himself during a uh, time of war. He says, Dear God, with you everything is possible. Let this cup of war, killing and destruction, this cup of bloodshed, human anguish and isolation, this cup of torture, breakage in human relationships and abandonment, Dear God, let this cup pass by. We are afraid. We are trembling in the depth of our being. We feel the sweat and tears of thousands of people all over the world, people who are afraid, afraid to fight, afraid to kill, afraid of being killed, afraid of an uncertain future. Please, dear Lord, let this cup pass us by. But dear Lord, and we say this with the same trust as your son Jesus, not our will, but your will be done. We look ahead and see only darkness. We look around and see only desire. We so much want our desire to be the same as your will. But when you call us to walk through this valley of tears and darkness, help us to be faithful, faithful to the end. Protect our hearts from bitterness, resentment, and the desire for revenge. Keep our hearts close to the heart of Jesus, who is willing to die for us, and so give us new life. As we pray, speak to us in the depths of our being and remind us that whatever happens in this dark world, we are and remain your blessed daughters and sons.